0: the Lord Jesus were going to write seven churches in seven cities in our area of the country, we would probably expect him to write maybe a letter to St. Louis and Memphis and one to Cape and Poplar Bluff and Sightson and maybe Carbondale and Paducah. But we would be a little surprised if he chose to write a letter to Blodgett or Crump or um, Sassafras Ridge or Olive Branch. Um... Well, the Lord Jesus probably surprised some people in 95 AD when in writing to well-established metropolises like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, he includes a letter to the church in Thyatira. We have that letter for us. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And Thyatira was the most insignificant city of the seven mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, although interestingly enough, it was the smallest city, it received the longest letter. Thyatira was, was about 20 miles southeast of Pergamum, and originally it existed for only one purpose. It was a sentinel city, and it was built to protect Pergamum. Its job was, if an army was approaching Pergamum, its job was simply to send a messenger to Pergamum to let them know that the army was coming And then its job was not to stop the army, but simply to slow it down long enough to give Pergamum time to get ready. So as you can imagine, this was a city that was knocked down many times and rebuilt many times. It was simply a battle alarm for the city of Pergamum. But over the years, it developed a commercial significance, and it was known for two industries. One was that it made fine brass, and the other was that it made purple cloth. And there was a plant that grew around Thyatira that had purple roots. And they would extract the dye from those roots and then uh, deal in dyed cloth, which was very expensive in that day. In fact, if you'll remember, in Acts chapter 16, when Paul first came to Philippi, he went down by the river with a group of women there. And it tells us that the first convert in Philippi, Acts sixteen fourteen, was a woman by the name of Lydia from Thyatira, a seller of purple garments. And so Thyatira was commercially involved in brass and purple fabric. And in the manufacture of these things, they developed an advanced system of guilds or labor unions. And in that day, each labor union was linked to, or linked to a pagan worship and uh, involved in pagan ritual, including regular parties and feasts and orgies that took place. And of course that created a serious problem for the Christian worker to be involved in the guild and to stay out of the idolatry and the immorality that were so closely associated with them. Politically, as we said, Thyatira was simply a military garrison. Religiously, it was the center of the cult that worshiped Apollo, the son of Zeus, and so. Or the Lord Jesus addresses this letter to the church in Thyatira, and generally speaking, Thyatira was just a small, blue-collar town, and there was a church there. Now, we can only guess at how this church began, and probably the best guess would be that Lydia and her family came back from Philippi, Philippi to Thyatira and started the church there. And this is a church with many positive attributes But one major problem, and their major problem was that they tolerated false teaching and they tolerated sin. And you say, well, why would Christ bother to address a letter to a little church in an insignificant town like Thyatira? We know, interestingly enough, if you look around the world, 80% of churches are small. In fact, 80% of the churches in the world are less than 200 people. So it makes sense for the Lord Jesus to write a letter to a small town with a small church because many churches are that way. But secondly, and more importantly, the problem that faced the church in Thyatira is a problem that faces many, many churches today. And that is allowing false teaching in its midst, allowing sin in its midst, and that sin going undealt with to not stand on the basis of the word of God when it comes to teaching, and to not stand on the basis of the word of God when it comes to disciplining sin in their midst. Now, Christ introduces himself to this church, as he does to all the churches, in a unique way. And if you notice verse 18, he says, And to the the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, and the Lord Jesus, as he does to all these churches, takes some expressions out of John's vision in chapter 1 of Revelation, and he introduces himself to the church. And here he describes himself in three expressions. He first of all says he's the Son of God. Now, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse, ele- verse 13, you'll find that John said he saw one like a son of man. But here the Lord Jesus doesn't use that expression. He comes and says, that he is the son of God. To so this church that was, was getting involved in the worship of the son of Zeus, he says, I am the son of God. And of course, that speaks of his deity and it speaks of his authority. This is the son of God who is speaking. This is not a letter that you can take or leave. This is a letter, a message from the son of God. And then he goes on to describe himself further in two other ways. He says, he is the one who has eyes, like the flame of fire. He is the one who has eyes that see everything. He's omniscient. His eyes penetrate into your life. He sees the reality of your life. And as he writes to this church that is allowing sin in its midst, he says, I'm the one with the flaming eyes. I'm the one who sees everything. And you can deceive other Christians, and you can deceive your friends. You may even deceive your spouse. But Christ says, you can't deceive me. I've got eyes like a flame of fire. And then he describes himself a second way. And he says, he's the one who has feet like burnished bronze. And that's significant because that's what they manufactured in Thyatira. He says, I'm the one who has the feet like burnished bronze. And bronze is a symbol in scripture of judgment. The Old Testament, Moses put the bronze serpent up on the pole. In the tabernacle, the brazen altar was the place of judgment. And so the Lord Jesus is reminded them that he's the one who has feet of bronze. He's the one who is the universal judge. He said in John 5, 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. He is the judge. And so as he writes to this church, he's reminding them from the outset that they're not to take these words lightly, because these are words of authority coming from the judge who knows and sees all. And in this letter, he uses the same format, basically, that he uses with all the churches, and that is he gives them a commendation, a condemnation, his counsel, and his challenge. First of all, we see his commendation, and that's verse 19. Notice, he says, I know your deeds and your love and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Now, Christ is going to say some very harsh things against this church, but he begins by affirming their positive characteristics, and I think there's a principle there for us, and that is when we have to confront wrong in another person, let's encourage the positive before we attack the negative. It's always good to precede a word of correction with a word of encouragement i'm trying to learn that with my boys i tend to be into correction more than i'm into encouragement and i think there's a good lesson for us here we see it in paul's letters he starts out with words of encouragement and then he gets down to the area of correction and so next time you want to tell me that i'm wrong don't just come up and say you're wrong come up and say uh you know you're a good teacher and and i really appreciate you and uh is your hair coming back in? Yeah. <laughs> you're using that Helsinki formula? You're looking so young, but you're wrong. Okay, that, That's the approach. Give a word of encouragement and then a word of correction. That's the Lord's method here. If there's any good to be affirmed, he first of all affirms the good. And then he deals with the areas that need correction. And he deals here with the church at Thyatira, and he has some good things to say about them in verse 19. He says, I know your deeds. This was a church that was working for God. Their deeds were apparent. They were busy. They were visibly active. Their deeds and their actions were commendable. They were not just talkers. They were walkers. And the Lord Jesus says, I see your deeds. And he says, I also see your love. This is the only church among these seven that he commends for their love they had a very tangible kind of love that was very apparent in the church at Thyatira they were caring concerned giving warm unselfish forgiving people and then he says I know your faith they believed God they trusted God and of course faith is kind of an abstract kind of thing it's hard to see faith James deals with that how do I know you have faith well Here, the Lord Jesus is speaking. He's the one who knows everything, and he says to the church at Thyatira, I know your faith. They had faith. And then he goes on, and he he talks about their service. They were actively serving the Lord, and service is something that really flows out of love. Love is sort of the abstract. Service is the expression of that. And then he mentions a further thing, and he talks about their patience or their perseverance, and that's something that flows out of faith. Service flows out of love. Patience flows out of faith. They were enduring. They were standing fast. They were dependable. They were reliable. In fact, at the end of verse 19, Christ says of them, your deeds are greater now than they were at the beginning. They didn't, just like so many Christians, start out strong and then fade. They started out strong and they were getting stronger. The Lord Jesus said, your deeds at the end are better than they were at the beginning. What a great commendation. Christ says, you've got love, you've got faith, you're serving, you're persevering, you've grown a great deal, the expression of your faith and love is evident, you've got much that is commendable, but, and he moves to the condemnation in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. What was their problem? They were tolerating false teaching and they were tolerating sin. They had a lot of love, but they also had a lot of sin. They had a lot of love, but they also had a lot of false teaching in their midst. And they were just the opposite of the church in Ephesus that we read about at the beginning of chapter 2. The church at Ephesus had sound doctrine, they were picking off the false teachers, they didn't injure evil men, but they had no love. Ephesus had sound doctrine without love, Thyatira had love without sound doctrine. And you've got to have both of those to be an effective church. The church at Thy- Thyatira seemed to have the attitude, well, we don't want to judge anybody. And we don't want to upset anybody. We love everybody, and so we don't want to deal with the area of sin. We don't want to offend anybody. You heard people talk that way? We don't want to make any waves. Jesus said, Judge not, lest you be, not, lest you be judged. So we don't do any of that. And yet it's interesting that Christ's condemnation of this church deals with the very area that they were not judging sin in their midst. That's the very thing he condemns about them. They were tolerating Evil, And it's important for us to grasp the fact that love is not tolerance of everything. You don't say to your child, I love you, now go do whatever you want. You say to your child, I love you, now come over here while I spank you, okay? Love isn't total tolerance. Love involves discipline. Love is based on truth. Thyatira had love, but it wasn't really grounded on the truth. And if you look in verse 20, you'll see what the problem is. Christ says, you are tolerating the woman, Jezebel. Now, there's lots of projections here on who Jezebel is and and a lot of things, but uh, I simply take Jezebel to be a woman in the church at Thyatira. There was a woman there in the church at Thyatira who was Jezebel-like, in her nature. Now, I don't take it that her name was Jezebel. I just can't imagine parents looking at their little baby girl and saying, "What a beautiful little girl! Let's call her Jezebel." You know, I just I just can't fathom that. Uh, neither can I fathom parents looking at their little boy and saying, "Let's call him Judas." You know, that it's kind of the same parallel line there. You just don't do that. But as he writes here, he talked in the in the previous church at Pergamum about the teaching of Balaam. And he goes back to the Old Testament. And here he talks about this Jezebel who was in the church at Thyatira. And what he's talking about is that this, there's a person there who has the character of Jezebel in the Old Testament scriptures. You say, well, what, is, what was Jezebel like? Well, keep your finger here for just a moment and go back to 1 Kings in your Old Testament. 1 Kings comes right before 2 Kings. It's easy to find. Chapter 16. 1 Kings 16, verse 30. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. And we learn something about Jezebel in that verse. She was a pagan. She was the daughter of the king of Sidon. She worshipped Baal. And Ahab, who became king of Israel went against God and married her, and she introduced Baal worship into Israel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel were kind of like the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. Uh, They were everything associated with evil, wicked, immoral behavior. Do you know what's interesting about them? If you come over to another verse, 1 Kings 21 and verse 25, you'll find out who the real instigator was in this evil, usually, when you have a pair like this, you have one who is the real leader of it. First Kings 21:25. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. There was nobody like Ahab. Nobody as evil as him. Nobody who sold himself into evil to the extent that Ahab did. And why did he do it? Because Jezebel incited him. And so she was the motive behind it all. And in Revelation chapter 2, Christ says there was a woman like that in Thyatira. She, notice, she called herself a prophetess. Christ didn't call her a prophetess. She called herself that. She claimed to receive direct revelation from God She set herself up as an authority in teaching truth when, in fact, she was leading God's servants astray into immorality and idolatry. And we can only assume that she was leading God's people right into the immorality and idolatry of the pagan culture around them. But I'd like you to notice a couple things in in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20. And that is that we as Christians are susceptible, and we as Christians are accountable. We as Christians are susceptible. Look at verse 20. It tells us that she was teaching and leading my bondservants astray. Christians can be led into immorality and idolatry. And if you think you're immune to that, you better think again. Because Christ says, here this woman came in with her false teaching and there go my bondservants into immorality and idolatry. And if you think you're not susceptible, you are probably the most susceptible of all. But secondly, I'd like to note in this verse that we are accountable. And if you'll notice carefully, he doesn't condemn the woman Jezebel in this letter. He has nothing to say to Jezebel. He condemns the church for tolerating her. She was in the church and the rest of the church was sitting around saying, well, we don't want to make any waves. We don't want to deal with this problem. And he condemns the church for not dealing with this woman who was teaching false doctrine and bringing immorality into the church. You know, one of the hardest things to carry out consistently and correctly is church discipline. And yet it's the very best thing for the individual and it's the very best thing for the church. You say, well, what should the church at Thyatira have done? What should they have done in this situation? Well, keep your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because we have a somewhat parallel problem there and we see how Paul dealt with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, (coughs) verse 1. says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. He says there's immorality in the church at Corinth. It's immorality that the Gentiles wouldn't even be involved in. A man is living with his father's wife. And notice the response of the church, verse 2, and, and you have become arrogant. You have become puffed up. The church at Corinth was proud because they said, we're so open-minded, we can allow this person to come in, even in their sin, and be among us. That was their attitude. Notice what Paul says, And you should have mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. And then Paul tells what he was going to do. Verse 5, he said, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What needed to be done? That individual needed to be put out of the church. For the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Why was he put out? For the pur- purpose of restoration. There was an individual in the church who refused to repent and Paul says that individual needs to be put out in love in order to bring that person to the point of repentance in order that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, at the church of Thyatira, they were unwilling to do that. They were unwilling to act, but that didn't mean that the Lord Jesus wasn't going to act And we see his counsel in verses 21 to 25. And he directs his counsel at three groups. He first of all directs his counsel at the followers of Jezebel. And then he directs his counsel to all the churches who are looking on. And then he directs his challenge to the rest in Thyatira. First of all, he addresses his counsel to her followers in Thyatira. Notice verse 21. And I gave her time to repent... And she does not want to repent of her immorality. You know, with most people, the problem isn't that they fail to recognize their sin. And the problem isn't that they don't know that they should repent. And the problem isn't that they need more time. Their problem is, like this woman, that they don't want to repent. And I've often said, man's problem is not intellectual, his problem is spiritual. His problem is not mental. His problem is moral. It's not his mind that he has a problem with. It's his will that he has a problem with. And this woman in the church at Thyatira, she knew everything she needed to know. She just didn't want to repent. She was in the classification that Jesus talked about in John chapter 3 when he said that men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. When it came right down to it, she didn't want to repent because She loved her sin. And that's why I said last week that repentance is a privilege. And it's a blessing to want to repent. That's a blessing that we have. And if you get to the point where you really want to repent and you continue to say no, you know what often happens? Your heart gets hard and it gets harder and you find yourself pretty soon in the situation that this woman was in and she no longer wanted to repent. And because she refused to repent, Christ has something to say to her in verse 22, or to say to the church. He says, Behold, I will cast her upon a bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. She's involved in immorality and idolatry, and Christ says, She likes beds, I'll throw her on a bed. And I'll throw her on a bed with those who follow her as well, and that will be a bed of tribulation. And then he adds at the end of verse 22 his counsel to those who are following her. He says, unless you repent. Her time is up, but there's still time for those who are following her. And he says, I give you the opportunity to repent. And then he has a a counsel to a second group, and that is all the churches. We see that in verse 23. He says, and I will kill her children with pestilence, or I will kill her children with death. Not only is there a Jezebel, but Jezebel has children. There are other Jezebels, and we've seen that in history. From the original Jezebel on down, there have always been Jezebels, and there are still Jezebels in the church today who teach false doctrine and lead God's servants astray. And Christ says, I'm going to carry out the death sentence upon them. I'm going to kill them with death. And that's very vivid. And he may even be alluding back, if you remember in the Old Testament scriptures, the end of Jezebel, it was rather graphic. Uh, She was up on the wall looking through a window uh, when Jehu came to town, and she painted her face, I guess, so he wouldn't know who she was, and he spoke up to those who were on his side and asked them to throw her out the window, and so they threw her out the window onto the ground, and he ran over her, with his chariot, and it said her blood splattered up on the wall. And uh, then he went upstairs, and when he came back later, the dogs had eaten her, except for her head and her feet and her hands. And it tells us that her remains were used as fertilizer in the field of Jezreel. Now, that's pretty descriptive. In fact, that's a little bit nauseating. But it seems that God was making a, a vivid picture of her end, And showing us what the end of that kind of behavior is. And that's what Christ seems to be saying here. He says, I will kill her children with death. It's not just going to be a normal death. I will kill them with death. And then, if you'll notice, he's showing us that he doesn't tolerate sin, that he judges it. But he's not just showing us that his judgment is just. I think he's showing us that this kind of judgment acts as a deterrent to sin. Notice verse 23. I will kill her with death. And all the churches will know that I am am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. I will kill her with death and to all the churches, he says, I want you to learn from this. I had an older brother growing up and I learned a lot from his spankings. When he had a spanking, I got real good. And... uh, I learn from his spankings what my parents tolerate and what they don't. And that's important. Judgment should act as a deterrent on those around. And so Christ is saying here as he judges this woman, he's saying you and the other churches as you look on, you need to see this as a deterrent. You need to deal with this. You need to realize that, that Christ doesn't tolerate sin. And he's the one who sees everything. He searches the hearts and minds, and he searches the deeds. He searches the motives, and he searches the actions. And so the counsel to the churches is to let the judgment of Jezebel and her children deter us from similar sin. You know, when you see Christ pull the shade on another Christian and I'm thinking recently of even the case with, say, uh, Jim Baker or uh, Jimmy Swaggart, and you see that kind of thing revealed, I'm afraid oftentimes as Christians we sort of down deep kind of rejoice in that because we think, he fell and that makes me feel a little higher. And Christ is saying to us here, when you see the shade pulled on somebody else, It should bring fear and it should bring purity to your life because you better realize the same light that shines on that individual is one day going to shine on you. And the same one who sees your hearts and sees your actions, the one who has the flaming eyes is looking at you as well. And sin revealed in the life of another believer ought to bring me to the point of purity in my own life. It ought to deter sin in me. And that's what Jesus is saying. As the other churches look on and, and sort of gleefully think about how much better they are than this church at Thyatira, he's saying, don't look at it that way. You better realize that you've got sin in your life as well. And the same judge is looking at you. Then he has some counsel for the rest in Thyatira. And that's verses 24 and 25. Notice, he says, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Everyone in Thyatira was not involved with Jezebel. Everyone in Thyatira was not holding to her teaching. Everyone in Thyatira didn't know the deep things of Satan. You say, well, what are the deep things of Satan? Well, the deep things of Satan include any teaching that leads God's servants astray. Any teaching that leads to immorality and idolatry is the deep things of Satan. And you don't have to delve into the occult to get into the deep things of Satan. The deep things of Satan, uh, even a person claiming to be speaking for God, if the message leads you astray... That's Satanic. And the deepest things of Satan were being taught in the church at Thyatira. And they are being taught in churches today. In fact, if you would bring me a doctrinal statement of many of the churches in this very town, I will point out to you the deep things of Satan. but Because they are included in what many of the churches believe. And Christ writing to the church at Thyatira says they're teaching the deep things of Satan, but there are those in the church that weren't holding on to those teachings. And so he addresses those in his counsel, and he says to them, to the rest, I have no other burden to put on you. No other burden than what? No other burden than stay away from this false teaching and stay out of the immorality and idolatry. And then in verse 25, he says... I want you to stay away from that and instead I want you to hold on to what you have. I want you to hang on to the truth. And so Christ's counsel is to Jezebel's followers, repent. To the churches around you better take note and it ought to deter sin in your lives. And to the rest, you need to hold on to the truth. And then the fourth point in Christ's message to this church is his challenge. And that's in verses 26 to 29. And he gives them two positive incentives. And as he does at the end of every one of these letters, he gives an incentive to the overcomer. And two things are mentioned in these verses. Number one, he tells us that if we overcome, we will rule the earth with the Lord. That's verses 26 and 27. And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations... And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. What a promise. He says, just as I received authority from my father, I will give that authority to you to rule with me over the nations. That's pretty exciting. In fact, take your Bible and turn back to Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a vision very similar to John's. And John, or or the Lord Jesus, is probably referring back to this as well as he speaks. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like, like a son of man was coming same way John described him in Revelation chapter 1. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here we see the Son receiving all the dominion and all the authority from the Father. Now, slide down in Daniel chapter 7 to verse 27. It says, talks prior to that about the authority being taken away from the Antichrist. And in verse 27 it says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Who's that? That's us. All the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. What a promise. And in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, I've received authority from the Father and I give authority to you that you will rule with me over the nations. How much authority does the Lord Jesus have? Matthew chapter 28, he said, All authority in heaven and in earth is given to me. In fact, look in Ephesians chapter 1 while you're looking. Ephesians chapter 1. We looked at this last Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. The end of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, last half of verse 19, says, These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where is he? Verse 21 far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he has put all things in subjection under his feet. He is far above all rule and dominion and authority and every name that is named anytime, anywhere and all things are in subjection under his feet. That's the Lord Jesus. Now notice what he says at the end of Verse 22. And he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ is far above all dominion and rule and authority. All things are in subjection under his feet. And where are we? We are his body. We are his body. Where does that put all things? Under our feet. That's a pretty exciting thought. And when we come back to Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is saying, My promise to you as an overcomer is that I will give my authority to you and you will rule with me over the nations. And then he has a second promise, and that is that we will receive the morning star. Verse 28, he says, And I will give him the morning star. say, well, what is the morning star? Revelation chapter 22. And verse 16 tells us what the morning star is. Revelation 22:16. I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The Lord Jesus is the morning star. So when he says I will give you the morning star, he is saying to us that in a special sense more intimate than it is today, he will give himself to us. And then he closes this letter to the church in Thyatira in verse 29 with that common phrase, "He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The Spirit of God is not just talking to the church at Thyatira, he's talking to the churches. And the message to the church at Thyatira is this, the me- the message is to let Christ judge us individually and collectively today. Let his flaming eyes reveal where we have false teaching and let his flaming eyes reveal where we have sin. And then stop tolerating it and start dealing with it by repenting where you need to repent, by discipline where you need discipline, and then by taking all measures to hold on to the truth. And of course, what could be greater than the truth? Because Jesus says, if you'll hold on to the truth till I come, I will give you my authority, and I will give you myself. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this challenge that in our midst can spring up false teaching, and in our midst can spring up sin. And Father, I pray that you would help us to balance love with truth. And Father, that we might truly react properly, that we might be standing on your word, and at the same time, that we might speak the truth in love. And Father, we just pray that you might find us to be a church that holds on to the truth, that we might truly be at your coming, considered by you to be overcomers. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.